If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? We will take it easy on the memes. It's Tuesday, May 26th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president of the United States is alleging murder. And as a sign of his power, prestige, and influence, absolutely no one is paying attention. In fact, if there is any impetus for action, it's not on behalf of Donald Trump, it's in defiance of him. Timothy Clausidis, the widower of the deceased woman, Lori Clausidis, is asking Twitter to enforce the terms of their contract and disallow anyone, including the president of the United States, from defaming and spreading lies, which he says, Timothy does, are tormenting his family. Trump doesn't care about the Clausidis's comfort, doesn't care about facts. He is using the story to pummel Joe Scarborough, MSNBC anchor and Trump critic, because the young woman in question died in Scarborough's office when he was a congressman. The medical examiner ruled she was alone. She fainted from an undiagnosed heart malady, hit her head and died. Tragedy. But you know the old line, tragedy plus time plus Donald Trump equals cruelty. Because Trump just brushes off any attempt at accountability, today it fell to press secretary Kayleigh McEnany to offer an explanation of why it was good or legal or moral or right or in any way in the public interest, really in any way defensible, for the president to allege Joe Scarborough murdered someone. Here was the sum total of her defense, which he quite proudly offered a few times. 2003 on Don Imus's show, it was Don Imus and Joe Scarborough that joked about killing an intern, joked and laughed about it. So uh, that was, I'm sure, pretty hurtful to Lori's family. And Joe Scarborough himself brought this up with Don Imus, and Joe Scarborough himself can answer it. He's the president of the United States, and he's accusing somebody of possibly murder. I mean, this is different. He's, he's, He's not a private citizen. He's the president. Yeah, and Joe Scarborough, if we want to start talking about false accusations, we have quite a few we can go through. No, no, that is actually not what we want to talk about. But shall I note, you are admitting that they are false accusations. Interesting. And what of this telltale Don Imus clip? The Don Imus defense. Usually that means a defense of, not a defense by Don Imus. Well, about 10 days ago, the Daily Caller and other right-wing sites did find this one time when Scarborough was on Imus in 2003. And back then, Imus was not yet fully and completely dead, we should note. So I guess what I just did right there was I just cruelly and insensitively joked about a tragic death. We should cue the president calling me a lizard person. No, don't do that. Do cue the clip where Joe Scarborough himself brought this up with Don Imus. <laughs> tell me what I need to do. Well, no, you're doing great. I mean, don't be afraid to be funny. Okay. Because you are funny. Uh, that was a... You know, I asked you why you were in Congress. You said you'd have sex with the intern, and then you had to kill her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, that's pretty risky to say. What are you going to do? So it could be, you, can, you can be very good. So the shock jock and the cable yacker are there, tastelessly, it must be said, ridiculing the idea of killing an intern. Ridiculing because it's ridiculous. The president, almost 20 years and several fact-finding commissions later, is taking an object of ridicule and holding it up as a real possibility. It's unfathomable, or would be except for this. That dynamic, pretending a ridiculous, discredited, implausible notion is real, of course, comes from President Trump. Because it's the very mechanism by which we got a President Trump. 
on the show today. I spiel about the tension between the head and the heart, the open and the closed, the scarecrows and the cowardly lions. But first, this is a viral crisis with a liquid prophylactic, water. Hand washing is an essential way to stave off illness, and yet many places in the U.S., places where comorbidities abound and mass transit is relied upon, in those places is where the water is most likely to be shut off. Why do we punish people who can't pay their water bill in a way that no other advanced country does? How's that working out for all of us? Mary Grant of Food and Water Watch up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. At a time when the number one piece of health advice is to frequently wash hands, what do you do if your water is turned off? I mean, unemployment is at Great Depression levels, bills come due, and people are hard-pressed to prioritize. Sometimes it's medicine or water. Sometimes it's electricity or water. Now, 13 states have mandated moratoriums on disconnecting residents since the pandemic hit. But that means 37 states don't have those moratoriums. And also consider when the lockdown orders expire and states reopen, a lot of the moratoriums will evaporate, to use a water metaphor. Joining me now is Mary Grant, who is the Public Water for All campaign director with Food and Water Watch, FWW. Hello, Mary. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just tell me a little bit about Food and Water Watch and what you do and what you advocate for. Food and Water Watch is a national environmental organization. We champion um, safe food and healthy access to water for all. And we do that through a theory of change of known as grassroots organizing. We want people to get involved. We mobilize regular people to get involved and to reach out to their elected officials, to urge them to take the actions that we need to make sure that everyone has access to the resources they need to live and a climate that is sustainable for all. 
Yes, and as we know, grassroots relies on water. So let us talk about what's going on here and now. Why is water at all something that we sometimes deny residents? I'll acknowledge water isn't free and someone has to pay for it. But, you know, there are a lot of analogies about things that municipalities provide that someone pays for that aren't denied to individuals when they can't pay a certain bill. Like I'm thinking of the fire department or the police department. I mean, it used to be the case that people had a private contract with private fire departments. But now, no matter who you are, if your house or structure is on fire, the fire department will come put it out with water. Why doesn't it work the other way? Why isn't water just seen as, I don't want to get too grandiose and call it a right, but just something we shouldn't be shutting off as punishment? We think that water shutoffs are always an injustice. It is always wrong to shut off someone simply because they can't afford their water bill. But there has been this movement across our country of changing how we fund water. It used to be that a substantial part of our water infrastructure was funded by the federal government using taxes, progressive revenue streams. So it reached historic highs in the 70s. It peaked. 1977 is when water funding, federal support for our water systems peaked. Since 1977 through 2017, it's fallen by 77% in real terms. So that's had shifted how we fund our water, changing it from um, using federal resources, progressive tax revenue, shifting it on to local governments who then have to raise rates onto households. So across the country, we're seeing water bills skyrocket and grow beyond the ability of millions of people to pay. People are struggling even before the pandemic. Millions of people were struggling to afford their water bills. And it's just sentiment that water is a um, commodity, this movement to commodify something that is essential for public health, something that is essential for public well-being. Water should not be seen as a commodity to be sold and traded on an open market. It's a resource, a public resource, a public trust resource. And that while there are costs associated with treating it and delivering it, as well as collecting the resulting wastewater, those costs need to be um, shared in a way that's equitable and a way that's just so that we're not pushing people off a certain that is so essential for, for life. It's necessary for life. So there was the shift in 1977 was the peak, and then it started to be the duty of local level and municipality to deliver it. But at the same time, costs went up. But those two things don't have to necessarily be true. I could see why costs would be shifted. So it wasn't through our federal tax dollars. It was through our local tax dollars or other means of spending, but why did the costs also go up, not just shift? So it's two simultaneous things. It's a shifting of how we pay for it from using federal tax dollars or tax dollars in general to using bills and user fees, water rates. At the same time, costs have increased because our systems are aging. A lot of our water systems across the country were built more than a century ago, and many of the wastewater systems were built in like the 1950s, 1960s, using federal tax dollars, 1970s, using those federal tax dollars. So now they're aging. They're reaching the end of their useful lives. Water pipes are breaking. Millions of gallons of water are spilled due to leaks. We have wastewater overflows. At the same time, like regulations are getting stronger. We're learning more and more about the contaminants in our water. So we're having to improve our treatment technology to remove those contaminants to protect public health. And on top of all of this, our climate is changing. So we're having those wet weather events and water scarcity in parts of the country, which is overloading. Um, it's really like stressing our already aging and outdated water infrastructure. So we have all these different factors together that are increasing costs at the same time that we have lost that federal support for our water infrastructure. So that's leading to these massive increases in water um, rates. So 
whether or not we could debate if water should be a commodity, it is a finite resource and it would be good policy to enact taxes, legislation, etc., to encourage people not to use too much of the resource. There is a good reason why people should be issued a water bill, and that is watering their lawns or use of water that is not for human consumption. And if people are billed for consumption, maybe they will be incentivized not to overwater their lawns, to shut off their taps, to conserve water well. Is there a way to do that? Is there a way to just get the good parts of a little bit of pain for overusing water, but not sacrifice the fact that people at a fundamental level do need water to live? It's really complicated. Um, Cities have tried to price water in a certain way that would charge you more for using more water, but it's really hard to set it up so that you're not penalizing people who are poor for having big families. You're not penalizing people who are poor for having outdated like plumbing in their homes that can cause leaks. So it's really hard to set it up in a way that you're not just harming poor people more and without incentivizing wealthier people to start conserving and stopping watering their lawns. Studies from California have found that it's way more effective just to have regulations, like to just order people not to water your lawns during the day or during droughts. Um, and that's way more effective than trying to use some of these like price points or pricing mechanisms, market mechanisms to try to compel good behavior. It's really hard not to set it up in a way that doesn't just punish people for being poor. A lot of water utilities did increase rates dramatically to try to compel people to cut back on water usage. But the people who cut back were low-income households. Right. But I have read, and this is according to uh, the EPA, that 30 to 60% of urban fresh water is used on lawns. Mm -hmm. It just seems like it's an inextricable problem intertwined with exactly what you're talking about. Okay. So let us talk about what are some ways that different areas, different municipalities, and I guess it's just up to every municipality unless there's a statewide mandate. What are some ways that they could navigate this system such that they don't punish people by shutting off their water, even if these people can't pay their bills? Yeah, so there are 50,000 water systems across the country, and it's definitely under a patchwork of regulations. But what one model we've been seeing across the country, particularly in bigger cities, is a model called income-based water affordability plans. It's commonly done in the electricity realm to set up percentage of income payment plans for low-income households so that people who are low-income can enroll in a program which effectively caps their water bill for essential usage at a level they can afford to pay based on their income. When you look at what is an affordable water bill, it's generally seen as a percentage of your income. So for housing, they say for housing not to be unaffordable, it shouldn't exceed 30% of your income. And so for the United Nations, the international metric of what is an affordable bill, it's 3% of your income. So Philadelphia, Baltimore, other cities like Detroit are considering setting up these percentage of income payment plans that really address the issue of affordability head on and make sure that water is affordable for every household based on their income. What about just not shutting off the water? I mean, some cities do that. Do they create a moral hazard in doing so? If people know their water won't be shut off, they won't pay their bills. Utilities 
companies claim that, but that's not what we've seen across the country or around the world. New York City never does shut off. Some neither does Madison, Wisconsin, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. There's dozens of municipalities across the United States that never shut it off. And globally, shutoffs aren't like the norm. It's illegal in the United Kingdom. It's illegal in France and Australia to shut off water for non-payment. Companies have been fined in France for just reducing the flow of water to low-income households over um, failure to pay their bills. So this is not the standard <laughs> of most of the developed world, like to shut off water for non-payment. It's it is not necessary. If other countries can have well-run water systems without disconnection, so can we. If New York City can do it, there's no excuse for utilities to be shutting off water service. So what is the lesson of New York City? What's Or Eau Claire, Wisconsin? Maybe we'll deal with New York City. It's a little bigger and I live there. <laughs> I mean, have, they had, have they had horrible consequences from this? And if not, seems like maybe some other cities, smaller cities, which is to say every city in the United States would consider the policy. You would think so. I mean, New York City is a really has a really well-run water system. They have really invested in protecting their water supply too, and I don't. I think they have a really good collection rate. Um, so I think that it, it is definitely a model for other cities to adopt and just not shut off water service for non-payment. It's it's when you. Sh- shut off water service for non-payment. It's not in the city's interest. It's not in the household's interest. Because the city, if you shut them off, that household for non-payment, and they're not able to pay their bill or to pay the reconnection fee, that's just a customer you lost. It's in the city's interest to make sure the water bill is affordable. And if it's affordable, the household will actually pay their bill and they'll collect that revenue. So it's a win-win for a city and a household to set up a system that makes water bills affordable for people to actually pay. Water shutoffs, we see them as just being punitive, just punishing poor people for being poor. It's not, it's an injustice and it's wrong. And it's not just in a pandemic. This is always, it's always wrong to have people not be able to wash their hands, not be able to take their medicine, drink a cup of water, take their medicine. I mean, it's imagine seniors living in a home with unflushed toilets. Imagine parents not being able to wash their hands after changing a dirty diaper. This is just wrong and it shouldn't happen. Beyond that, let's say uh, I'm sympathetic because I'm a sympathetic guy, but let's say I weren't. Let's say I was uh, very unsympathetic and all I cared was my own self-interest. Could you make a self-interest argument about not shutting off water, how the city not shutting off the guy down the street's water actually helps you? Sure. There's a lot of ways making water service affordable for people, not just using shutoffs, is in the interest of the public welfare, the public good. One is just the the clear public health ramifications, especially as we're confronting a really scary pandemic. You want people to be able to wash their hands. You don't want someone who's in like the service industry not being able to wash their hands at home and going out into the world. Water shutoffs can lead to evictions. It can lead to homelessness. It can lead to people having to move around a lot. So there's a lot of broader social implications of having unaffordable water bills, unaffordable utility services, and shutting people off. It's not in the interest of society at large. It's bad for public health. It's bad for public well-being. Okay, so the HEROES Act, which is the House-passed essentially wish list that even Nancy Pelosi acknowledges isn't going to get passed without significant changes by the Senate, that would allocate $1.5 billion to help low-income residents pay their water bills. Some lobbying groups, maybe yours, say more is actually needed. This is the fourth crack at a pandemic relief 
Bill, this wasn't in the first three. Are you optimistic that the water provisions will actually pass? Or does the fact that they waited until the fourth bill to put them in there, does that give you some pause? Well, we do have a lot of hesitation. The House released a draft version for the CARES bill. Also, that included similar provisions, water shutoff protections, the $1.5 billion in low-income assistance for water. It just didn't make it into the final bill that passed the Senate and the House. So we really need to keep the pressure on. We need to make sure that our senators are hearing from everyone right now that this is important, that everyone needs water right now, that we need to make sure that people have assistance to help them pay their bill to keep the water flowing. Um, so it, again, like it's just really important that people reach out to their senators and make sure that these protections pass in the next relief bill. Mary Grant is the Public Water for All campaign director with Food and Water Watch. Good talking to you, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. America's shut down, day 75. But now the country begins to open. And the question is, too soon or not soon enough? As the debate rages, on the one side, the doofuses. Ah, uh, hello, Melania and uh, Governor, you have overstepped. We can take care of ourselves. Thank you. We want to work. On the other side, the Frady Cats. I'm afraid if we don't listen, we're in for another surge pretty soon. Dumbasses and crybabies, buffoons or cowards, who will win? America 2020, a nation divided over divisiveness, up next. Yes, that was basically every news segment that I heard over the Memorial Day weekend. And yeah, it is true. The more educated you are, surveys show, the more you fear the virus and more cautious about returning to normal pre-pandemic life. But to be fair to the doofuses, some of them aren't. And to be fair to the cowards... Fear is rational against a deadly virus. Now, my world, I'm going to say maybe your world, is a world of the New York Times and CNN and Slate and educated people with degrees who live in large, mostly cold weather cities, New York, Chicago, Boston, D.C. It is a world of cowards, or as we call ourselves, the cowardly cognoscenti. Okay, I mock a little bit, but by and large, I think the very cautious do have the better part of this argument. But not everyone arguing the other side is actually a doofus. And not every argument on this go-slow side is correct. Okay, I mock a little bit, but by and large, I think the very cautious do have the better part of this argument. But not everyone arguing the other side is actually a doofus. And not every argument on the go-slow side is correct. So on March 17th, Jake Tapper of CNN played tape of San Franciscans walking and biking after Mayor London Breed had told them to shelter in place, though she also said they could go outside for fresh air or to walk pets if they distanced. Now, the footage that was being shown on CNN didn't show any signs of violation of the decree, but anchorman Jake Tapper was acting as if the Embarcadero visitors were engaged in some sort of combination mosh pit meatpacking festival. This is actually kind of enraging. Uh, the people of San Francisco, or I shouldn't say the people, but many people in San Francisco have clearly not gotten the message. Right. Wrong. Wrong, voice of Sanjay Gupta. And though you are a valuable voice of medical knowledge during this pandemic, the video we were seeing, including people who were distanced, though the camera lens flattens depth, 
was not a video of anyone doing anything wrong. First of all, I, we see a whole bunch of people here who are not distancing. They're holding hands and walking down the street and, you know. People can hold hands with other people they're quarantining with. They were distancing. They were outside. It was fine. Tapper disagreed. These are live pictures coming in of a shelter in place, complete with jogging and cycling, uh, strolling, uh, and uh, we saw earlier rollerblading. Um, now, the mayor, when I spoke with her earlier today, said uh, that you were allowed to, to take a walk if you needed to or walk your dog. Um, but I look, I'm no medical professional, but I don't know how effective this as a shelter in place could possibly be. Tapper is right. He is right. He is no medical professional. Gupta, however, is. But he got it wrong, too. The government knows what needs to be done. Public health officials know what needs to be done. It's not happening right now. But it was. San Francisco was right then and there, not as Gupta and Tapper were lecturing us. They were not the epitome of noncompliance. They were, in fact, exemplars of compliance. San Francisco, a city of nearly 900,000 people, has had 40 only 40 corona deaths total. Holding up the San Francisco initiative as a failed one based on those pictures was wrong. It turned out to be a giant success. And to weave in an appeal to expertise as an example of why those videos of people holding hands were bad, that's a little bit of an embarrassment and does discredit the message. CNN, of course, didn't apologize or revisit this. Tapper told me the CNN studio was much safer than what we saw in San Francisco two weeks later. His fellow CNN anchor Chris Cuomo tested positive for coronavirus. After him, anchor Brooke Baldwin tested positive. Both have been working out of the CNN studios in New York. Now, a similar outbreak that wasn't might seem like an outbreak depending on what media we consume. And that was on April 7th, when hundreds of thousands of Wisconsinites went to the polls. Guardian headline, Wisconsin decided to allow people to vote this week. People will die as a result. Well, of course, it would have been better if people were allowed to vote by mail, didn't have to go to the polls. It's not a good thing to force people to go out to the polls as if that was the only option. That's clear. But the predictions of mass carnage did not come to pass. It's not even proved that anyone died as a result of having voted in Wisconsin. Here's a headline. 71 people who went to the polls on April 7 got COVID-19. But let me quote the remainder of that headline in the Wisconsin State Journal. 71 people who went to the polls on April 7th got COVID-19 tied to election uncertain. Yes, 71 COVID cases resulted. None of those reported have led to death, but 453,000 people voted in person. If they all stayed home that day, there's no way of knowing if more or less of them would have had COVID-19. Two studies conducted, but not yet peer-reviewed, show there was no increase in COVID cases due to voting. One was from the University of Hong Kong and Stanford University. It found, quote, no detectable surge in COVID-19. Another study, also not yet peer-reviewed and published, from Ball State and U. Wisconsin Oshkosh, used some other methods, and they did find an increase. It is ambiguous. It is not 100% clear that any of those cases would have happened without voting, and it's also not clear that anyone died because they voted. Again, I want to be clear. They shouldn't have been made to vote, but there were mass predictions of mass carnage, and those predictions did not come to pass. It was in Wisconsin, on the Embarcadero, it was far from the most dire or even median dire predictions. Which brings us to President Trump not wearing a mask. 
Or, which brings us to that great Washington Post piece about blasé shoppers in an outdoor mall in Alpharetta, Georgia. Or those idiots you may have seen this weekend, and I do mean idiots, why risk it, in Lake of the Ozarks. We've seen so many health officials be very critical of the video that hit the internet over the weekend, showing that packed pool with zero social distancing. Well, now leaders in St. Louis County are taking action. The health department there says anyone who didn't properly distance themselves at the Lake of the Ozarks needs to go into quarantine for 14 days. They're even out with a travel advisory calling the behavior reckless and saying what they're seeing online endangers countless people and risks setting us back. So we... Many of us in the cowardly intellectual part of the country now expect there to be a huge outbreak among that group. But we are learning. I mean, I hope we're learning. We're supposed to be smart. That's not how it happens. Over and over, we see huge gatherings in defiance of what appeals to our sense of common sense. And yet some huge contagion doesn't follow. Why? Well, one reason, like I said, is we see it. So that means the activities are taking place outside. And another is that we start with a symptomless population coming from a place where they aren't in contact with other COVID carriers, and it's just hard for the virus to spread. So maybe if we're in New York and we see pictures of a bunch of people crowded together in New York, we say, oh my God, a number of those people must have COVID-19. But if we see the same kind of crowding in a place like Lake of the Ozarks, it's not true. Lake of the Ozarks, by the way, I got to say this, that's not a name, that's an abdication of a name. Get around to, you don't have to name it like Lake Minnehaha or something extremely specific, something kind of general like the Grand Canyon will do. But please pick a name. Anyway, Lake of the Ozarks touches four counties, and those counties have experienced an average of 15 total COVID cases each. Not COVID deaths, just cases in those counties since counting started. So even though a hot spot can occur on a battleship or in a meatpacking plant, it isn't likely to occur in most meatpacking plants or most battleships. Donald Trump knows this, or at least intuits the calculus, that even though not wearing a mask increases his chances of acquiring or transmitting the virus by three or four or some multiple, it's still far from likely that he will acquire it. Therefore, he will signal to his believers, perhaps you've heard of them, the brave doofuses, the courageous ignoramuses, he will signal to them they are right in their ignorability. But we, the nerdy wusses, need to be a little humble too. We're too often making assumptions, decrees, and predictions, not based on science, which is changing, but based on our own version of instinctive rather than intellectual thinking. Luckily, we, the Frady Cats in cities, we have the brave he-men of Georgia, Texas, and Missouri to run the experiment for us. It seems that given a couple weeks, maybe a month, and accurate statistics, God, I hope they still have accurate statistics, we will have a much better indication if their hardiness was of the foolish variety, if their glory was of the vain kind. And when the numbers are in, we, we few, we outside the pool of the lake, of the Ozarks, of the idiots, we, the people of such abiding intellectualism, will at least be able to read the statistics accurately. That's one good thing about having big brains. Now, this all depends that our amygdalas don't overwhelm our frontal lobes. Or if you're listening with a brave guy and you need to translate for him what I just said, tell him it means so long as we don't all piss our pants. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST associate producer. She recalls with disdain 
Don Imus's insouciance regarding both Nixon and the Catholic Church. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He isn't so much a fraidy cat as a yellow belly. The gist. I don't know if there is a calamity to hit the Lake of the Ozarks, but if there is one, it'll be either the Mexican drug cartels doing or the Kansas City mob or maybe Ruth going rogue or, and I'm still working this last one out, something to do with a faulty cornballer. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.